good morning, Cedar Mill. My name is Bethany. I am one of the pastors here. Hi, good morning. And I'm, I'm Bethany's husband. <laughs> and my, my close friends still call me Paul. And I'm also one of the pastors here at Cedar Mill. And if you're new or visiting us for the first time, I want to welcome you. We're in the uh, second week of our marriage and relationship series entitled Ever After that Pastor Dave launched for us so beautifully last week. Uh, but for us, this July, we're going to be celebra- celebrating our 20th anniversary. Yeah. So we're super jazzed about that. But it was about this time 20 years ago, we were on our way to our first premarital counseling appointment. And we were getting our premarital counseling done by an older pastor at the church Bethany grew up in. And if I'm being honest, uh, I wasn't super excited. Um, I started thinking, uh, again, in my youthful ignorance and arrogance, what's this old guy going to teach me about marriage? <laughs> I'm 22. I'm an adult. <laughs> well, we, we, <laughs> we ended up going, but unfortunately, my attitude didn't change. And after we were done, I told Bethany, I, th- I think we're done with this. We don't need this anymore. Uh, in my thinking, I was like, hey, how hard could this marriage thing be? She loved Jesus. I love Jesus. She is beautiful. What's the problem? (laughs) But friends, I think ultimately today, we might just be sharing with you everything that we miss because we're premarital counseling dropouts that Jesus had to teach us over the last 20 years. Yet in all seriousness, um, my mentor often reminds me, sharing the gospel is really just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. And we come to you this morning as two beggars, because what we've learned is that our marriage is completely dependent upon the gospel. So all we can offer you this morning is honesty and vulnerability, and to point you in the direction where there's new life for you, for your relationships, and for your marriage. And so we entitled our sermon today, A Gospel-Dependent Marriage. Do you have anything you'd like to add to me? Yeah, being that this is a marriage series, it might be tempting if you're unmarried to think that there's nothing here for you this morning. But hang with us. Um, there really is here something. There is something here for everyone. There's not a gospel for the single, a gospel for the married, a gospel for the young, a gospel for the old. There really is just one gospel. So while the focus this morning is primarily on marriage, it's relevant for all of us. Now, the most important, the most essential ingredient to every marriage is the gospel. Now, what is the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life that we couldn't live and then took on the weight of our sin on the cross and then walked out of the tomb conquering death? What does that have to do with marriage? Everything. And as we look at what a gospel-dependent marriage looks like this morning, we're going to look at the way that the gospel fortifies our marriages. We're going to look at the way the gospel frees us from unfair expectations that we place on our spouses and our marriage. And we're going to look at the way that the gospel empowers us to forgive. As Dave mentioned last week, um, the marriage covenant is held together by a vow of absolute faithfulness and commitment. And it's permanent. The covenant is permanent. And it's in our marriage vows that we don't promise to feel a certain way. 
but we promise to act a certain way. And it involves a death to ourselves um, as the good of the relationship takes precedence over the immediate needs of the individual. And it's not a contract where you protect your self-interests, but a covenant is where you actually lay those self-interests down. It requires sacrifice. Remember from last week, it's no longer me, but we, yeah. And one of the beautiful things that I have discovered as we've been preparing for this message today is just that the covenant of marriage is not just one theme among many in the Bible. It's actually the theme. It's like the mega theme. And if we look at how the Bible begins in the book of Genesis in 1 and 2, we see God creating the heavens and the earth for the very first couple, Adam and Eve. And then in Genesis 2, we see the very first wedding or marriage ceremony. In 2.24, it says, A man shall leave his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And then if we jump to the very end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22, we see that God is creating a new heaven and a new earth as the home for the eternal couple, just Christ our perfect bridegroom, and his bride, us, the church. And I love what we get to look forward to in being united with our true bridegroom. Revelation 21, 1 through 4 says this, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Don't you love that? I can't wait for that day. But do you see how marriage brackets the entire Bible? But why? Why is this covenant of marriage so significant? And why is it like the mega theme of the entire Bible? The Bible is telling us the story of the love of God. It's telling us of the faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God. And since God created everything, he created beings and things that would reflect him. And that includes marriage. Ephesians 5 um, gives husbands and wives instructions for the marriage relationship that reflects something much bigger, much more grand, much more significant. And the instructions include things like love and submission and respect and laying down one's life for the other. And then the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 verse 31 says this, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery but I'm talking about Christ and the church. You see, marriage is a metaphor of Christ's perfect love for his bride, the church. It's intended to reflect the perfect love that was betrayed, rejected, and then crucified for his bride. And then that love was resurrected to pursue, redeem, and bring her back. And the story of the Bible, as Ray Ortland puts it, is this. I loved you, but I lost you, and now I want you back forever. 
And that love isn't based on feelings, right? It's based on that commitment, the promise of God, the covenant that he made with us. And this means that for every single marriage in this room, no matter how imperfect, is intended to be a metaphor of the gospel. Every single marriage in this room is meant to point to the truth of a crucified and risen Savior who has died for his church and is redeeming her unto himself. Every marriage is meant to be, by the grace of God, the most faithful reflection of that covenantal relationship. And it's this covenant that fortifies our marriages. When the external struggles attack and the internal struggles from within cause problems in our marriage, we hold tight to that covenant, that promise we made to one another and to God. And it ultimately reflects the covenant love that was given to us through Jesus. Now, Paul, do you want to share a little bit about our journey, our story? Yeah. Mm. Honestly, friends, it is the fact um, that marriage is a covenant and reflects the gospel and God's covenantal love to us that we are sitting here today. Not long after we dropped out of premarital counseling, we got married. (laughs) And not long after we got married, we started arguing. And when I say arguing, I mean a lot lot. of arguing. (laughs) If you know Bethany and I, you know that we both have really strong opinions about just about everything, right? And add to that, we were going through some external struggles, relationship stuff outside of our marriage. But after months of almost daily fighting and arguing, I remember one night thinking, I just can't take this anymore. So I drove to a payphone at a nearby gas station. And I want to pause right there, too, for the under-20 crowd. (laughs) There used to be these glass outhouse-looking things with phones in them. They were on random street corners and at gas stations. But I remember pulling up to the payphone and getting out my phone card, which was a whole nother deal, and, and typing in like 27 digits, and then finally calling my parents. Remember that 22-year-old who didn't think he needed premarital counseling? Now he's on the phone with mom and dad, right? And I remember saying to them, I just want to come home to Oregon. I can't do this. We fight all the time. But their, their response surprised me. They said, sorry, son but you need to go home to Bethany. You made a covenant with her, and wherever she is, is home. This is why I love his parents, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I just remember the reality of what it meant to make a covenant truly hit me for the first time in that moment. And I remember getting back into my truck and driving home to Bethany. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words to his young niece and her fiancé from his prison cell in 1943. As high as God is above man, so high are the sanctity, the rights, and the promise of marriage. Above the sanctity, the rights, and the promise of love. It is not your love that sustains your marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. Mm -hmm. Friends, for us, it is the gospel-reflecting covenant of marriage that sustained us in that season. And it it is for that reason that we are here today. I thank God for his faithfulness to me. Now, I realize for some the idea of covenant-sustaining marriage just seems like unromantic willpower. Like, that doesn't sound like the makings of a really good romance movie. (laughs) 
But I love how John Piper challenges that notion with his description of covenant. He says, the covenant of marriage is the soil in which the beautiful flower grows. Friends, the gospel can sustain our marriages and help them grow through dry times, hard times, and painful times. And friends, we change. God grows us. Fortunately for Bethany, I'm not the same guy I was at 22. Bethany has probably been married to a couple different versions of me. <laughs> and I'm truly hoping this is your favorite. This is definitely my favorite. The gospel sustains our marriages not only so we can grow, though, but it also gives us a front row seat to see how God is transforming our spouse more and more into the person he intends them to be. And the gospel sustains our marriages so we don't miss out on the incredible blessings that God has in store for us in our marriages. The gospel fortified our marriage through that season and other hard seasons to come. And without it, and now I'm going to get sappy and you know, you knew that was coming. Without it, I would have missed out on this most beautiful journey the last 20 years with the love of my life. Mm. <laughs> Second, the gospel frees us of, from unfair expectations we put on our spouses. Our culture, and from a young age, tells us that our romantic relationships will always meet the deepest needs of our hearts. I remember the first girl I liked in eighth grade. And again, sorry if this is the first time what? you're hearing about her yet. <laughs> but I remember grabbing my boombox and my dubbed Chicago tape. And just listening to it, thinking about how much I love this girl. Anyone remember the band Chicago? Yeah. Okay. I know, I know the young crowd, I'm losing them. But like phone booths and phone cards, tapes were a thing. But I remember listening to Chicago's song, You're My Inspiration. Remember that song? You're the meaning in my life. You're the inspiration. You give feeling to my life. You're the inspiration. Now, if you're too young for Chicago, just think the lyrics to a Shawn Mendes love song. <laughs> but then I remember the day that she broke it to me that we would never, ever, ever date. And I then remember listening over and over again to Michael Bolton's How Am I Supposed to Live Without You? <laughs> off his album entitled Soul Provider. <laughs> or what about that famous scene in Jerry Maguire when Tom Cruise looks at Renee Zellweger and says, and you know what he says, what does he say? You complete me. Friends, over and over we're told that our romantic relationships or marriages should meet the deep needs of our hearts. They should give us meaning, value, security, ultimate joy and happiness. The list goes on. But what if they were never created to do this? And what if our marriages are supposed to point us to the one who can meet the deep needs of our hearts? Spoken or not, recognized or not, we set expectations on our spouses that they were never intended to meet for us because they were never created to meet those needs for us. I know I had unfair expectations I placed on Bethany to meet my needs and to make me happy. Did you have any on me? I had a few. I'll get to those yeah. in a second. <laughs> Equal time. <laughs> As Paul Tripp says, apart from the gospel... We will seek horizontally from people in our lives what can only be given vertically to us by Jesus. Friends, marriage is a good thing. It is a tremendous gift from God. But hear this. 
When we look to our marriages or our spouses to meet the deep needs of our hearts, we take a good thing and we make it a God thing. And that's a bad thing. Because when we attach our ultimate happiness, meaning, identity, and security to our spouses, it never ends up with love, intimacy, and romance. It only leads to disappointment, hurt, anger, and ultimately, alienation. Friends, other people, our spouses, family members, friends, cannot meet the deepest needs of our hearts because there's only one who can. And 2 Peter 1.3 actually tells us that because of the gospel, Jesus has already given us everything we need. We can relieve those burdens from our spouses to be everything for us. He is our ultimate source of joy, identity, security, peace, and happiness. But now what about those unfair expectations you had, of, had right. on me? Yeah, um, well, they were all unspoken ones. Ones that I probably couldn't have even put words to at that time, but um, I had this idea that he was going to make me happy all of the time. <laughs> and I also had this idea that if I strived hard enough, I could be the perfect wife. And so when I would fail or I would let him down, I would feel crushed, like really crushed. And then I would get mad at him for pointing out any of my imperfections, right? I also knew in my head that I was a sinner and that I was flawed and broken and made mistakes. But I think in reality, I didn't think I had that much to change. Or at least he had more to change. Yeah. Fair. I, I was really looking to him for just constant approval and acceptance and joy and my identity and I couldn't handle any criticism. And when we expect our spouses to meet our deepest needs, when we look to them to love us perfectly, to approve of us always, to be the source of our identity, to understand us all the time, all of that, it puts so much pressure on a marriage, more pressure than even the Bible puts on marriage. And these expectations pressure marriage to be something that it was never intended to be. And then everyone feels hurt and disappointed. There's no earthly relationship that can satisfy the longings of our soul. Only Christ can do that fully. Psalm 107.9 says this, For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. When we're satisfied in Christ, we can say to our spouses, My security is in Christ. My identity is found in him. My acceptance is with Jesus. My approval is found in Christ. You aren't responsible for my happiness. I already have what I need in Christ. So let me just lift that burden from your shoulders. You aren't my savior. Let me free you from that. And when you release your spouse from these unfair expectations, you no longer rehearse all the wrong things they've done and all the ways that maybe they haven't lived up to those unfair expectations. And then it frees you to really love them, to like grow in your affection towards them. And it frees you to really see them the way that God sees them. Now, for those of you who are un unmarried, the world is telling you that there's someone out there who is perfectly compatible for you. Someone who will complete you, someone who will accept you just the way you are and never ask you to change, someone who will make you happy all of the time. And this sets marriage up for such disappointment because we're all flawed, we're all sinful, 
And our completeness can't be found in that other person. It's only found in our relationship with Jesus and the identity that we have in him. Whether you're married, whether you're divorced, whether you're single, whether you're widowed. And while marriage is intended to mirror the gospel, those of you who are unmarried have the opportunity to point us, married people, to the truth that our ultimate satisfaction and contentment is found in Christ alone. And I personally can't wait for next week. Pastor Ashley is going to be preaching on contentment. I'm really looking forward to that. You won't want to miss it. But a friend of mine who's part of our church community here, um, she's currently caring for her husband who has dementia. And I cannot imagine how difficult that would be for me to slowly lose Paul or for his memories to fade or for him not to know who I am. It would wreck me. Um, But when I asked her how her week had been, um, this is what she said. She said, my week was great. She said, you know, Jesus is an amazing husband. He meets all of my needs. And then she proceeded to tell me just how he has been so faithful in meeting all of her needs. And I was a little taken aback by her response, and it was just beautiful and honest and true. He is the perfect husband. And as she watches her earthly husband fade, she's clinging to her perfect bridegroom. And it was a witness to me of just how faithful Jesus is. He meets all of our greatest needs through his power, through his presence with us, and his faithfulness. Now, not only does a gospel-dependent marriage fortify our marriage and free us from those unfair expectations that we place on our spouses, it also gives us the power to forgive. If you're married, you live with a flawed person, and our lives will be complicated by their brokenness. And the reality is your marriage is complicated by your brokenness as well. And it's out of that brokenness, the selfishness, the pride, the anger, and so on, that we hurt one another. Before forgiveness can take place and the relationship restored, there must be confession and repentance. 1 John 1.9 tells us this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, in order for forgiveness to take place and real change to occur in a marriage, there must be confession. It's the doorway to growth. It's essential. It's fundamental. Without it, then you're stuck in a cycle of repeated misunderstandings and conflicts. Anybody have any cycles in their marriage? I have nothing of it. Nothing? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Please, nod your head. Tell me you do too. Um, But... The circumstances might be new, but the underlying issue kind of feels the same in the marriage. I know for Paul and I, it's almost like we each have a script where it's like a conflict occurs and then like he pulls out his script and I pull out mine and we start reading. Um, But in order to break this cycle, we must confess our sin and brokenness to God and then to one another. And it's hard. I have a difficult time owning my own stuff. I do. Are you nodding over there? (laughs) Okay, I have a really difficult time owning my own stuff. But it's like I have this inner defense lawyer that lives inside of me. And it comes out when I'm being criticized. Even if my mouth is not moving and I'm like restraining myself from saying anything in the moment, this inner lawyer is silently making a case for my defense. And it's proving to me that I'm not the person that he thinks I am or says I am right in this moment. But... Um, confession takes the person or takes the focus off of the other person and onto ourselves. 
And the Bible calls us all to humbly confess that the greatest problem we all face is inside of us. It's sin. It's self-focused and self-serving. Romans 7 describes how it feels to me at times. In verse 22 through 25, it says this. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched person I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, there's only one, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Although we may even want to do good at times, we still fall short. And the Bible tells us in Romans 3, 23 through 24, that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we're all, thankfully, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. When we recognize our sin and our flaws, our brokenness, and acknowledge that we do fall short, then God's grace can do its work. And it is grace, it's his grace that really opens our eyes and softens our hearts. Unfortunately, many times in our marriages, we're like the Pharisees who were in the temple thanking God that they weren't as bad as the other sinners. And when I read that this past week, it hit me hard because I identify with them. And it's easier for me to point the finger to someone else than to actually look within myself. In fact, it caused me to go to Paul and confess some things and apologize for some things like pride and not enough self-examination and so on. And I would actually recommend to you, if you are married, to go home and try to write a marriage sermon with your spouse. <laughs> you will need the gospel, though. You'll need the gospel. Yeah. Um, but it does reveal a lot to you. Um, but why is confession so difficult for us? I know why it's difficult for me. Then I have to admit that I can't do it on my own. I can't be self-reliant. I have to admit that I'm sinful and I'm flawed and I'm a broken person and that I desperately need a savior. Confession requires our confidence and our identity to be grounded in Christ so that we are able to step out into the light unafraid of what we might be asked to face. And we can know that it's by his grace that he has already forgiven us for anything that we have to confess. And the beauty is that when we do confess, Jesus is ready. He's right there waiting to forgive you and will purify you from all unrighteousness. So no matter what you have done, nothing is beyond his grace and his mercy. And no matter what your spouse has done, Nothing is beyond his grace and mercy. And confession is actually freedom. It's about hope. It's not about personal loss. It's about relational gain. And whatever you've done, it's no surprise to him. He's already paid for it on the cross. And this applies to each one of us. So whether you're married or single or divorced or widowed, confession is key in all relationships. It's the, really the first step to change and transformation. Paul has actually taught me quite a bit about confession. He doesn't struggle with that like I do. And he likes to get everything out on the table and he's honest and just, I appreciate that actually about you. <laughs> but you know I've got my things. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
When we decided who would share on confession and forgiveness, we decided to take the ones that we struggled with the most. And if Bethany struggles with confession, I struggle with forgiveness. If she has an inner defense attorney, I have an inner prosecutor. And, and he's, 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 he's good. pretty good, huh? Yeah, yeah. He's legit. He's yeah. legit. <laughs> Maybe this is why, if you were to ask me what the most important verse is for our marriage, I wouldn't say it's Ephesians 5 and the charge to serve one another and submit. And I wouldn't say that it's the, the popular vision of love that you hear at almost every wedding in 1 Corinthians 13. It would actually be a verse that's not a traditional wedding or marriage verse at all. It would be Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. It's a verse that applies to all relationships. Relationships single people have, widowed people have, divorced people have, and marriages. Every single relationship. But honestly, I can't think of a more important text for marriage. Because the reality is, no matter how good our intentions Every marriage and relationship is made up of one needy, tender sinner and another needy and tender sinner. So inevitably, we will hurt one another. Being able to forgive one another has been one of the most, if not the greatest blessing for us in our marriage. And as I said, I sadly struggle with forgiveness when I have been hurt badly. And because I love Bethany so much and we're so close, when she hurts me, it hurts bad. So my tendency is to create these invisible lists of wrong in my heart and carry them around. But the danger is if you're a list taker like I tend to be, it can become toxic. And you can lock your, your marriage into this cycle of hurt and anger and resentment. And it can go on for years. And it also results in us not seeing or seeing our spouses through a negative lens rather than remembering the good that God has done and is doing in and through them. Yet if your marriage lacks confession and forgiveness, we not only risk setting our hearts adrift from one another, we are also unable to stand together and protect our marriages from external attack. Because friends, if marriage is a reflection of God's covenant-keeping love and it pleases him, you better believe the enemy wants to do anything he can to tear marriages apart. Paul Tripp says it this way, forgiveness is the only way to deal with hurt and disappointment. It is the only way to have hope and confidence restored. It is the only way to protect your love and reinforce the unity you have built. It is the only way not to be kidnapped by your past. It is the only way to give your marriage the blessing of fresh starts and new beginnings. But what does it mean to truly forgive? First, what it is not. It is not simply grinning and bearing it. The biblical picture of conflict is always going to the one that's hurt you. Think Matthew 18. It is never just silently taking it and becoming a doormat. And biblically, forgiveness is actually a two-step process. It's a vertical process and it's a horizontal process. Vertical between us and God and horizontally between each other. Vertically, it's going to God and releasing the hurt that's been committed against you and relinquishing your desire to judge and bring your own justice. And doing this vertical work first allows us then to go to the person that has hurt us and do the horizontal work of offering them forgiveness without bitterness in our hearts. 
Yet one of the reasons forgiveness is so hard is that it requires faith. It requires faith to release the wrong committed against us and trust that God's way is better. Forgiveness is better. Friends, the question is, can you trust him with the hurts in your marriage? Can you trust him that his way offers new beginnings for you and for your marriage? Now, forgiveness requires something else. It also requires a little bit of self-awareness and a memory. And no, not a memory of the list of wrongs committed against you that your spouse has done to you to hurt you, but a memory of just how much God has forgiven you. Friends, it's almost impossible to forget, forgive when we forget or deceive ourselves into thinking our spouse is the only sinner in need of forgiveness in our marriage. Or we minimize our own sin and only focus on their sin. Even if we have harmed them less, the reality is we have all fallen short of the mark. I heard Josh White say this once. If you show up at a bus stop and miss the bus by five minutes, you don't look at the person who showed up 15 minutes late and think that you're better off than them. <laughs> for Pete's sake, you both missed the bus. Right? It is for this reason Paul reminds us of how, we have, how much we have been forgiven ourselves when he tells us to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. C.S. Lewis says it this way, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And again, friends, I'm not saying forgiveness is easy. As Lewis also says, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. <laughs> but the Apostle Paul knows that when we remember how Christ has canceled the debt of our sin, we are able to have the humility to, to extend forgiveness to our spouse and relieve them from the burden they carry. A few years ago, our youngest daughter had her finger slammed in the door by one of our younger sons, and those of you who know our kids wouldn't be surprised by that. By that. <laughs> but it looked awful, like hanging by a thread, awful. Fortunately, Bethany raced her to the hospital and they were able to save her finger. But when I got the bill, <laughs> it was like $10,000 plus. There was literally no way we could pay this hospital bill. And I just remember feeling the weight and the burden of carrying around that debt every day. Then one day, one of my friends said, why don't you go down to the business office and see if they have grants for people like you? When I first sat with the lady in the business office, she abruptly told me, most people don't qualify. But then she said, but I can check. What's your income? And when I told her our income, she spun around in her cubicle and looked at a chart on the wall. On the left side of the chart were numbers for income. And on the top of the chart were numbers for how many children you have in your home. She then asked how many children we had. <laughs> it's the ace up my sleeve. When I told her we had six children, <laughs> She followed the chart over and realized there was no category for us and her finger slipped <laughs> off the chart. And she just turned around and said, yep, you definitely qualify. <laughs> Your debt will be totally forgiven. Yeah. I cannot tell you how good that felt and what that felt like, that weight that was lifted. Yet that is just a shadow of the debt that Jesus has relieved for us, for the sins we have committed. Mm -hmm. Refusing to forgive our spouses 
would be like me immediately leaving the hospital in that moment, racing back to the church and demanding $3 back from Pastor Dave for the Taco Bell lunch I bought him. (laughs) And this is what Paul is trying to communicate. In light of how God has forgiven you, he will give you the power to forgive your spouse or the other person that has wronged you. 2 Peter 1.3 tells us that not only does Jesus give us all we need in life, but for godliness too. He will give us the power to forgive. But it is important to know, the biblical pattern of confession and forgiveness is confession and then forgiveness. We can do the vertical work with God, but the horizontal relational work requires confession. Ultimately, Sometimes we just have to trust that Jesus is going to deal with all sin. But if our spouse does confess, we have a very special opportunity. We get to reflect Jesus to them. We get to free them from the burden of the sin and guilt that they've been carrying. And it takes humility. But if we do forgive, we can replace the pattern of anger and resentment in our marriage with a pattern of confession and forgiveness. I just want to close with this quote from Paul Tripp about hope for each one of our marriages. And listen closely. Perhaps the brightest, most wonderful commitment of the Redeemer is captured in these words from Revelations 21.5. Behold, I am making all things new. New is the operative word for what God is seeking to do in you and in your marriage. You are not stuck. You are not committed to the mistakes of the past. You are not cursed to pay forever for your heirs. God's work is in the work of renewal. He sent his son to earth in order to make real and lasting change possible. God has made fresh starts and new beginnings possible. Reconciliation can take place. Restoration really does happen. What was broken can be healed. The weeds of the old way can die and the flowers of a new, better way can grow in their place. Friends, in a moment, we're going to come to these tables. And I know they don't have candles on them. And they don't look particularly romantic. But they actually represent the most romantic story ever. It's a story of a groom who pursued his bride. And when he won her heart, he made a promise to her, a covenant. And he sealed it in his own blood. And then he met every deep need of her heart. And then he laid down his life for her. And he told her that no matter what she did to hurt him, he would always forgive her. And then he promised her he would never leave her and never forsake her. Friend, I don't know what your relationship status is this morning, but you are Jesus' beloved. And when you are ready, come to his table.